0: Well, you're all still here. How cool is that? I'm imagining that each of you has had at least one moment over the last couple of days where it was just a sense of tenderness or appreciation, whether it was something you saw, or something in your heart, or sound you heard. So I just had one of those, you know, it doesn't get any better than this kind of moments, um, walking up the hill through the parking lot and seeing several of you uh, out there in the sunset doing walking meditation. You know, slowly, quietly. And then hearing the serenade of the coyotes in the background. And then seeing my friend in front of me. You know, so precious. So beautiful. So happy the coyotes are still here. We can hear their voices. So I just want to reiterate um, what Chaz said last night about listening to a dharma talk. It's, it's really sage advice, <clears throat> which is that, um, you know, through our own practice here, in our own dharma practice and as teachers, um, we do our best to offer, essentially, translation of the Buddhist teachings as they have been translated to us. And then through that you get, you know, you get a person's style or personality, you know, which I think makes the Dharma very rich and delightful. And it may be that there are some things that are said that don't resonate for you or maybe even that you out and out disagree with. So maybe just notice that, not worry about it. Um, the, The point and intention of a talk really is to Support your practice, and to support your practice through um, th- the gift of uh, the Buddha's teachings. So that's the intention, and so hopefully something from any talk you listen to will inspire you or nourish you in some way. And even if it's just one thing, um, that's that's a nugget. It's it's a worthy. It's at least for me in my practice, it's always been worth listening. So I want to, uh, appreciate all of you, those of you that had the, uh, good fortune to meet in the small groups and, um, to hear your, your rich questions and the sharing of your practice. And just for you to know, and I know I speak for Chaz as well in this, is just how inspiring that is, you know, truly. Um, it's, it inspires me in my own practice and, um, well, to be honest, it gives me faith in humanity, really. Uh, which is not to say that I think everyone should become a Buddhist or that any of you should become a Buddhist. But it's really to, uh, to partake in the, in the receiving, excuse me, in the receiving of uh, wisdom, wisdom and love, expressed through individual beings. What a, what a privilege that is. It's an extraordinary privilege so equally to say that um, someone today in one of the small groups mentioned courage and absolutely agree that it takes it takes an enormous courage really to actually come and sit on a retreat and sometimes I think because we're so busy applying ourselves and taking in the suggestions and the teachings and trying to work it that we miss that you actually miss that. So you'll hear us say, and take a moment to reflect, you know, to appreciate. It's not like, oh, I'm so great. That's not really what that is. It's actually recognizing the energy that it takes to show up. You know, that, that courage, that willingness, that perseverance, that openness. Yeah. Important human qualities that we can, um, partake in and actually ripen in and and deepen in and you know being on a retreat I feel is is an example of that because we all know it's not easy right no one's even nodding their head but let's how about you know yeah (laughs) anyone here like it's really easy super I'm just in the flow like maybe you should come up here (laughs) um Chaz and I both teach uh, teens and have been for the last 20 years right here in this hall. And, like, they're very responsive. You know, if we ask a question, like, yeah, you know, they're they're in there. So um, I'm calling on your teen self to, uh, to respond. So it's probably very likely that at one point or more or many during this retreat, you've said, okay, you know, I'm paying attention to the breath, um You know, here with my moment-to-moment experience, you know, feeling a sense of calm, okay, you know, what's the point? I can do that, but what's the point? Really, what's the point of meditation? Hmm, It's a good question. You know, the Buddha himself, uh, when asked, and if you think there's, if you really, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but if you just go to any of the scholarly material, there are volumes and volumes of the Buddha's teachings. Vast. Vast and specific and thorough. And, you know, he was often asked this question and and he gave a very pithy answer which some of you probably will be very familiar with. And he said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. It's compelling. I think it's actually the answer to that question, why do we practice? At least it is for me. I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And he expounded on this in many, many of his sermons, his teachings, the suttas. um, And particularly in his first teaching, his first sermon after his awakening, which is the teachings on the Four Noble Truths which tonight I would like to go into with you. Explore them a little bit with you. Um, But beforehand, I'd like to say just something personally um, that I find myself asking that question more frequently. It arises in my mind, like, why practice? And I've been practicing for close to 40 years. Why practice? The question doesn't come out of confusion or doubt. There is, a, there's a, there is an unshakable faith in this experience, in, in these Dharma teachings. That doesn't mean my life is anywhere close to perfect or that I can always embody them. But there is a, there's a complete faith in the, these teachings as a path to, um, to liberation. I think the question arises more for me personally is just maybe it's aging or maybe it's just being more and more aware of the conditions that we're in. These conditions, these larger conditions around us or around me in this culture. The conditions that uh, seem to foster the very things the Buddha warned about, spoke about, urged with great urgency his followers to, to investigate, to practice, to, to cultivate the opposite of. And those, they're often referred to as the three poisons or otherwise said as greed, hatred and delusion. And it just seems like, of course, those um, qualities, if you will, or states of mind, or ways of being in the world, have been around probably since the beginning of humanity, I would imagine. But here we are living in this time. And to just kind of see, again, I'm speaking for myself personally, this erosion of humanity in a way and in in the political realm um, and the way people can speak to each other in behavior. Now as I said it's not new but there's something that feels so deeply compelling to a deep desire to want to transform these energies, these seeds and flowers of greed, hatred, and delusion that we know are so harmful in our world, and just noticing, you know how. It, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to be on a soapbox here, but just, just, just in this heart, mind alone. Just sometimes feeling overwhelmed by that, or scared, or some, or angry, or sometimes very inspired. Um, there's a great love and sadness for humanity. It's interesting when we reflect on it that the Buddha talked about these things 2,600 years ago in a completely different culture. And yet there is this understanding about the effects of greed, hatred and delusion. Greed, ill-will and ignorance. When When they're not understood When they're not seen, then they're acted upon and cause incredible harm. Uh, So I'd like to quote here from some modern day sages that I also find compelling and inspiring. Um, This is from Bell Hooks, who's a black woman, feminist, Buddhist practitioner. She said this, well, I'll tell you after I read the quote. I feel our nation is turning away from love, moving into a wilderness of spirit so intense we may, we may never find our way home again. I write of love to bear witness both to the danger in this movement and to call for a return to love. And she said this in 17 years ago. 2002. So, shortly after 9 uh, 11, I do think the Buddhist teachings really ultimately are all about love. That you can't really have wisdom without love. And true love, pure love, can't have wisdom within it can't, can't live without wisdom within it. Here's another quote. This is from James Baldwin. People who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction. And anyone who insists on remaining in a state of ignorance long after that innocence is dead turns himself into a monster. I'll say it again. People who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction. And anyone who insists on remaining in a state of ignorance long after that innocence is dead, turns himself into a monster." It's a pretty powerful statement. And I think it speaks directly to the Buddhist teachings. What happens when ignorance dies? What happens when we see through delusion in our minds? You know, it can completely change our whole lives. And that's not because of planning for it. It's interesting just even to reflect on James Baldwin as a person. You now he was black, poor, gay. You know, all the odds were stacked against him, if you think about it. Grew up in New York, the fact that he even survived at all. And just had that courage to speak the truth. Enormous courage. And love. I don't think James Baldwin was a Buddhist. He didn't need to be. So here's, here's a quote from the Buddha. This is an excerpt from his fire sermon. He says bhikkhus. Bhikkhus means monks. Well, I think it means nuns and lay people as well. He's talking to all of us. Bhikkhus. All is burning. The eye is burning. Forms are burning. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. What is felt as pleasant, painful, or neither pleasant nor painful. That too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of delusion. I say it is burning with birth, with aging and death, with sorrows, with lamentations, with pains, with griefs, with despair. Bhikkhu's all is burning." So what did he mean? Maybe did he just need back then a nice antidepressant, just kind of chill things out? I don't think he had a depressed mind quite sure he didn't. I don't think he had a depressed mind. I don't think he had a repressed mind. I don't think he had a suppressed mind. I, I think he was awake. He was awake. Uh, he, he was committed. He was a human being that was committed to understanding the truth. And he knew he knew that the way to understand the truth wasn't really out there. You know, he experienced that as a young boy growing up in a wealthy environment. Now that didn't produce happiness. See, then he went to the other realm in his beginning uh, asceticism and and went to, you know, not eating and um, just kind of turning away from the the. the You know, not eating, hardly sleeping, you know, that didn't bring him awakening, it brought him near death. You know, so he started to eat again, he started to, you know, wake up from that practice and, you know, discovered that there's a middle way. And the middle way, you know, has to do with being human. It has to do with paying attention to being human, to living a life. And so he, he committed himself to understanding that, to understanding his mind and heart. Very determined, very devoted. Perhaps we might even recognize some of these qualities in ourself. So as he pursued that, he pursued that yearning for freedom. his mind woke up. It wasn't just like a sudden awakening. It was this determined paying attention and this resolve to pay attention. To not just go off and get distracted, give up, but to pay attention. There was that deep desire for freedom in the mind and heart. And probably that faith that it was possible because why else if he really didn't have some faith in that why would he have bothered? He wasn't like super popular either. he, he, He dealt with trials and tribulations like the rest of us. He understood somehow that the way we stop the war out there how can we stop it out there if we're not stopping stopping it in here you now sometimes people like to sort of categorize you know meditation practice or buddhist practice like there you are sitting on a cushion and then here's the world and here's being active in the world as if they they are necessarily separate things It's a misunderstanding of practice. I think it's a deep misunderstanding of practice because the more you practice, the more the the mind and heart wakes up and it has to respond. There's no other choice but to respond to life. It's like you can't hide. Less and less can you hide. And that's not such a bad thing, actually. How can we truly understand the world if we don't understand our own minds and hearts? How is that even possible? It just becomes projection. When we take the time to slow down, pay attention, and really understand the working of the mind and heart, we understand everything. That's not the ego. That's resting in truth. It takes courage. Big courage. So in these, in the Buddha's generosity, I love this part of of the story of his life because once his, his awakening happened, once, you know, his His mind was clear, pure, kind of dwelling in freedom, freedom of mind and heart. He kind of was like, okay, I'm done, you know? And then the next thought was like, well, why? You know, if this happened for me, and I'm a human being, that means it's possible. That means it's possible for other beings could happen for this being it's possible for other beings so that was his inspiration to to teach there are those that have but little dust in their eyes no not everyone is keen on coming on a retreat you've probably had people ask you they need to either go like wow that's so cool you're doing that or like why are you doing that you know how can you stay silent for that long you're like I don't know but i you know sometimes my answer becomes like i don't know what my life would be like without having some time to to really slow down to pay attention to connect deeply so the buddha began to teach and his first sermon as i said was on the four noble truths I kind of think of the Buddha as like the ultimate cognitive scientist. I mean, obviously he went much deeper than that. But, you know, when you really like tune into his teachings, they're so precise. Um, And I just find that kind of deliciously appealing. So with the Four Noble Truths, we can synthesize them to, number one, here is the problem, or here is the perceived problem. And number two, there's a cause for that problem. And number three, good news, recognize, we recognize there's a solution. And number four, he lays out the solution. It's like, whoa, this is is pretty cool. So whether you realize it or not, you've been practicing with these Four Noble Truths over the course of these last several days. Some of you may be familiar with this teaching. Some of you it may be brand new. It's We can hear it with a a new mind. I mean, I've heard talks for years on the Four Noble Truths. It's always helpful to be reminded. So that first truth is that suffering exists. So what did the Buddha mean by this? This is another one of the teachings that gets quite, quite misinterpreted. Like, uh, you know, that... Buddha was some kind of a nihilist or you know needed an antidepressant um I had a friend once say well what about joy I was like of course joy exists joy is part of our life the Buddha actually expounded upon this too so what did he mean by suffering life is suffering well, this is what he, what he really meant, was that there is there's suffering in the world that we can't get away from. Be, simply because we're in this. Simply because we're human being. And that suffering has to do with, in some simple ways, we might say, illness. Is anyone free in this room from illness? You've never got even a common cold, you know? birth in itself, maybe we don't remember it, but mm, I don't know that it's a pleasant experience for either party. <laughs> so, suffering, birth, illness, aging. You know, you, you like it or not, there's your body doing its thing. As Chaz said last night, it's a natural thing. It's changing. Over time, breaks down. <laughs> That's what happens death no death isn't just for those of us that are older or for the elderly death happens across the whole lifespan maybe there's even people in this room that have lost an infant or had a miscarriage or lost a child or a friend when you were young or a sibling Or your parent when you were young. I mean, we this is part of our worldly condition. We can't get away from it. So this is what the Buddha meant that when he said life is suffering, he one aspect of suffering was there is suffering in the world that we can't get away from. He went on to expound that there's there is actually added suffering to that. It's often described as the second arrow. So the first arrow is like, ouch, that hurt. You know, the second arrow is, you know, who did that? I'm going to figure that out. Or why did that happen? Or that shouldn't have happened. Or, you know, it's like, whoa, there's this pain. How do we relate to this pain? The second arrow really has to do with this level of suffering that we might even in a very simplistic way say it's not necessary. It sounds a little bit heretical to say that but maybe you've discovered some of this over the last day or so. You know where you're, you're busy trying to your mind is desperately trying to change the situation whatever it is. You want a better sitting. You know it's like you could spend a whole sitting trying to get the right posture or you know or to get rid of that difficult emotional feeling or that thought pattern that there it is again and again and again showing up again it's ruining my meditation all these strategies to try to get rid of what it's just something that's showing up in the mind but we don't like it but we miss we miss that we don't like it and so we we're caught in this kind of belief system that if we just strategize enough if we just do it a certain way we'll get it right well what will we get right What are we going to get right? It's going to be, I'm going to feel better. Now, this isn't to condemn ourselves for wanting to feel better. It's it's part of our DNA. It's survival, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And yet what happens, you know, we're in this position as human beings to have some discrimination around that. So this added suffering is really our, our relationship to life. The strategizing, the the, in some ways we could call it is born of ignorance. And what is the ignorance? Well, it's actually believing in some kind of permanency, that somehow things you know we can have control and get things a certain way. That's probably the biggest delusion, that we really have control. Now you know your mind says, well, "What does she mean?" You know, I I have to get things done. Somebody once said to me in a class, "Well, what if I got to get my taxes done?" It's like, I do too. (laughs) But when we really investigate the mind, particularly when you're still, when you're slowing down, when the distractions are purposefully put aside, like they are in a retreat, you really get to see how, whoa, not a lot of control, right? It's kind of coming, going, coming, going. And what happens when we don't grasp at it? So here we're getting into the second noble truth. So the first, there's suffering in life, and you can change, if you don't like the word suffering, I had someone get so upset with me once about the word suffering. Change it. Dissatisfaction, um, pain, sorrow. I love the word lamentation. The Buddha used the word lamentation. So, discomfort, you know, this is part of life. I mean, just in a simple way, when you think about body temperature, it's a trip, isn't it? It's like one degree. But I can notice sometimes in my office, you know, just, just one, we sometimes we have a little, I'm in a suite, and we can have little um, temperature wars, you know, um, thermometer wars, you know, because from, you know, my office, it's perfect at this temperature, but someone next door, it's too warm for them. And so you just to get it right. And I start to notice like, wow, one degree makes a difference. I mean, that's in some ways how vulnerable we are as humans, just, just our response to temperature oh boy, then we can contemplate climate change, and that's, oof, big. So let's, we'll stick with um, (laughs) this momentary awareness of our vulnerability, the changing nature of things, our likes and dislikes in relationship to that. So there's this suffering, and then there's this relationship to it. So the Buddha expounded upon in this second noble truth uh what it can intensify that suffering what actually perpetuates it And and I'm going to probably sort of breeze through this because of time, but you will certainly be exploring it over and over again in your practice. I mean you could you could answer this what I'm about to say and that second noble truth is what perpetuates suffering essentially is that we try to hold on to the pleasant our pleasant experiences we seek them out we chase after them when we feel pleasant we try to keep it there or we stress about it going away and of course it's going to go away because that's the nature of life things come and go it's not because we're doing something good bad right or wrong there's a whole lot of moral You know, energy in that. What happens if we just back up and notice? Okay, that teaching from um, William Blake, you know, kiss the joy as it flies. So it comes and it goes. If we don't grasp that pleasant, If we don't try to manipulate that pleasant, we can just be present with it. Actually, there's less stress about it coming and going. And the same with when something's unpleasant. The strategy in the mind to try to get rid of what's unpleasant. So, okay, am am I suggesting or did the Buddha suggest pretend that it's not unpleasant? No freaking way. No. Quite the opposite. It's actually what is happening right now ah, this is seriously unpleasant. Now, sometimes the mental note in my mind is hating, hating, hating. You know, because it it can be that intense sometimes, whatever it is. Maybe it's just sitting still in a posture and kind of having that commitment, not going to move, and just feeling the burning. Anyone familiar with what I'm talking about? You know, and just just feeling... I'm not saying it's the only way to practice, by the way. Just, just saying this one example. You know, just... And just watching the reactivity in the mind and actually there's some energy in that just to to actually sort of notice it's not going to kill me. You know, it's just being with this intense discomfort. And the more you practice, the more confidence builds in practicing in that way. I'm not saying then there's one way to practice. You might practice that and you you might have the opposite practice where you're so your mind is so hard and so driven and so pushy that in fact actually it's gonna be radical for you to go sit in that dining hall and make yourself a cup of tea. You know, and just explore, okay, all right. Well is this the practice? You know what? And then you start to discover, by golly it is. You can actually sit there and be mindful. Sit there. Feel the hand. Notice it. Watch people go by. Watch the guilt rise in your mind. I'm sitting here having a cup of tea. I should be in the hall. should be walking. Look at that person over there doing walking meditation. I should be doing that. No, I don't want to do that. I hate that. It doesn't work for me. You know, it's like our minds are like ruthless. Somebody said today, and I hope you don't mind me quoting you, um, but somebody said today, you know, they realized at the end of the day yesterday that the mind is just a liar. <laughs> you know, it, really, it's another way of saying, like, we, we don't have to be so enamored with with our thoughts. We don't have to believe our thoughts. Like, a lot of times, they're kind of off. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> I told this on the last in my last uh, retreat I taught here just recently. Um, but it's it's a story that um I'm just fond of because it kind of has elements it really has a lot of elements of my personality in it. But I was on retreat once, like everything does, right? I mean, you just see yourself everywhere. so um there was a note this was a time when notes were rather it was a number of years ago when notes on the bulletin board were like prolific. People would just leave notes a lot we are not encouraging that by you know they they really stopped that at some point i think it was very wise but anyway i see this note and it says you know scorf please come home to me and this was a fairly long retreat i sat on i was like oh gosh there's a couple here that's broken up and you know they're they're gonna get back together you know and wow that's so amazing and just feel that sensitivity in my heart and how touched I was. And then, you know, a few days later, I looked at the note again. Looked a little more carefully. It was the winter time, and it said, "Scarf, please come home to me." And somebody had lost their scarf. You know, but so our minds, like they do, <laughs> they do things. <laughs> they make up stories. You know, and. Um, it's just how it is. No? No. And, and it, does it mean, I know it Is the suggestion here that you dismiss every single thought that comes through your mind, and that's how you live the rest of your life? I mean, that would be psychotic. No, that's, not, that's really not what the teaching is. That's not what the Buddha was saying. But to really begin to see how we marry our thoughts, how we glom onto them and you know one of the things that you know the buddha said about this second noble truth of attachment the attachment to pleasant the the aversion to unpleasant which is kind of like whatever we resist persists was also the attachment to opinions the attachment to views and opinions you ever been in a situation where you just realize god that's like more uncomfortable more unpleasant than just letting it go maybe in a situation in a relationship or a number of years ago, um, a friend of mine died of cancer and she was also a Buddhist practitioner young. She's in her forties. And so I was with a group of her friends and preparing the services and her friends were, many of them were not Buddhist practitioners. And, you know, in this mind I was like determined for the service to have certain Buddhist elements in the service. Um, and, um, was making my point about it, and I could kind of feel the mm, the recoil, and, um, and and it's not like these people were anti-Buddhist. It was really the energy that was coming for me, and you know, it it was great teaching for me. Just a little bit later, of like, wow, look at the suffering of needing it to be a certain way. Well, we did have Buddhist elements in it, but it was it was the energy of it was the energy of like, I'm right. And, you know, in some ways, in those moments, the stakes felt very high. You know, she was dead. This was her memorial. This was uh, honoring her. But it was was really that graspy, this is right. And when we can start to see through that, boy, it's very liberating. It's very liberating. I, I was very grateful for seeing that, actually. It was a great teaching for me. So the suffering, then there is the perpetuation of suffering through grasping onto, trying to hold onto the, the fleeting nature of things, the coming and going of things. It's so, in some ways, it's so counterintuitive in a way to say, okay, let go. Sometimes it feels like jumping off a cliff. But actually, the more we practice just being with, being present with things as they arise and as they pass, actually, the mind settles, the heart settles, it gets more confident, it gets more pliable. It strengthens, it, 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 it has the capacity to be present, not just with you know, a thought, but with the whole thing, this whole thing of life. That friend I was just telling you about, she, um, just personality-wise, she was somebody who um, had a lot of fear around um, illness and, um, and also was fairly um, opinionated about other people kind of like you'd call her like an aversive type her mind was kind of aversive and in her dying process again another incredible teaching um and everyone was welcome in the room everyone was welcome in the room like something just shifted so hugely to the point where she was in this shared room and the woman next to her was kind of driving me crazy had the tv on like really loud okay so you know just the little curtain here's the loud tv you know commercials, and here's my friend dying. And um, she said, "What's that? What's that sound? What's that noise?" I said, "Oh, the person next to you has a TV on." She said, "I can work with that. I can work with that." Wow. We don't know how practice is going to transform our lives, and to be able to have that. Hmm equanimity you know at the end of one's life is an extraordinary gift and her life was ending at an early age she was in her early 40s we don't know how the practice is going to unfold it's like you know if you're baking a cake you don't just keep open in the oven how's it going how's it going how's it going but that's what we do with our practice isn't it you evaluate every sitting well, that was a good one no that was lousy you know, it's funny. People say to teachers, like, that was a really bad sitting. My favorite question is, what do you mean? What is a bad sitting? What's a good sitting? Oh, you mean you had some pleasant experiences in that sitting. Oh, well, that's nice. I can enjoy it. You know, we don't want to ignore when we feel sense of peace, well-being, easefulness. You just enjoy that. Let yourself rest in it. Kiss the joy as it flies. (gasps) Two minutes to talk about the way out of suffering. (laughs) (laughs) So the third noble truth. Like, I just want to do a full prostration to the Buddha. You know, this third noble truth, there's a way out. You know, there's a way out of this hamster wheel of got to have it, got to have it. You know, think of our culture, like production, accumulation, success, all of that. See, it is like a hamster on a wheel. You know why? Because as soon as we feel success, failure's around the corner, isn't it? You know, we could be up here and give a talk and, you know, the note may go on. It's like, oh, thanks, beautiful talk, another note. I don't really like that you said that. You know, praise and blame. It's part of life. It's unavoidable. Praise and blame, loss and gain, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. You know, it's always changing. So there's this way out, way off the wheel, off the hamster wheel. You know, and it's not, just a, it's not checking out, it's actually the opposite. It's actually taking these teachings, this is the Fourth Noble Truth is, is the Eightfold Path, lots of lists in Buddhism, uh, but it's a worthy one to really investigate. It's a worthy one to really uh, study and practice this Eightfold Path. And, and there's three aspects to it. The first is, is the understanding of these other noble truths, the understanding that life is changing. That's the nature of life. It's not your failure or mine. It's changing. The conditions change. They come and they go. That because of that changing conditions, we live with insecurity. You know? And that's, that's unpleasant in its, in its own way that changing nature of things. We Live with this changing nature, this changing insecurity. The other, you know, awakening factor in this wise understanding is we start to really realize we're not so separate. You know, did you notice that in some of the small group meetings? You hear other people talk, like, I've got that. Oh, That happened for me too. Oh, you know, we start on a very simple way to begin to recognize we're in this, we're in this boat of humanity. That's what makes things like racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, ageism, able-bodiedism crazy. Crazy, insane, harmful. Why? Because it's complete delusion. It's complete misunderstanding, complete ignorance of our interconnectedness as human beings, is our uh, complete ignorance of our shared humanity. And the result of it is horror. We know that. It's not to say we all live in the same conditions. We don't, for all those very reasons I just stated. We can be treated radically different, just based on the color of our skin. Somebody was just telling me that uh, someone she knows is a a black man. He was uh, running to mail a letter. This is a local town in Massachusetts, running to mail a letter to the post office. You know what I'm going to say. Police stopped him, picked him up, put him in the car, brought him to the police station. Professor at a college. He didn't have to be a professor at a college. He could be anybody. But we know why he got picked up. You know, this that's that's ignorance. That's that's ignorance. Aversion, ill will. Those are the things the Buddha talked about. That's what makes it worthy to purify our minds and hearts. So we can respond. And we may respond in many different ways to the world. But in this pathway of understanding, we understand our interconnectedness. We understand that things are changing always in life. We understand that none of us are free from pain and sorrow, from joy, that they are the the flow of life. And through that, it impacts the way we act in the world. And the Buddha spoke about this, and Chaz spoke about it the first night. You know, the Buddha said you could meditate till the cows come home and if you don't practice non-harm, if you don't engage in a life of non-harm, it's like, it's like trying to row a boat that's still tied to the dock. You know, these practices of non-harm have to do with how we speak to each other, how we think, how we act, how we are in the world. And we don't do them perfectly. But we can practice with them. And the more we practice, the more sensitive in a positive way that we get. The more attuned we get to what's harmful to ourselves and another and to the world. So it's part of this Eightfold Path. And the the last third of it is really about continuing to to practice mindfulness and meditation and uh, make the effort for that. It's not so we're just like sitting in light it's so we can clear our minds so we can see clearly so we can understand the nature of suffering its causes and its release this is doable this is what you're doing here this is why we're here this has the potential to transform our minds and hearts and to transform the world. Not everyone's going to become a Buddhist. Not everyone's going to come and sit on retreat. But we all know what happens, you know, when our own heart is transformed. It impacts. It has an impact. This is time well spent, my friends. Use it wisely and lovingly. Respect yourself. Honor yourself. Allow your own awakening its true space in your being. Because it's already there.